When the whole family comes together to watch the game, nobody wants to miss a second of the action to run to the grocery store. With Instacart, you can get all your weekly groceries in as fast as an hour. Less time shopping means more game time. Let's go. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. I've never seen a case that has so many red flags in it that are just so, like, extraordinary. Like, any piece of this case, I feel like on its own, would be enough of an eyebrow raiser to make you question the conviction. But the fact that there's so many, it's just kind of, like, mind-boggling. Welcome to The Score Behind the Headlines, a new investigative podcast from 670 to Score. I'm Julie DeCaro with executive producer Tony Gill. Each season, we'll take a deep dive into one sports-related story. In season one, we're examining the murder of James Jordan. The year is 1993 in Chicago, and the Chicago Bulls are on top of the world. The team was led by Michael Jordan at the height of his Be Like Mike fame. And at the time, he was the most famous athlete in the world, maybe the most famous person in the world. On June 21st, 1993, the Bulls clinched their third straight NBA championship, beating Charles Barkley and the Phoenix Suns in six games. Jordan averaged a playoff record 41 points per game and became the first NBA player in history to win three straight MVP awards. Here's longtime Chicago sports reporter Cheryl Ray Stout, who currently works for WBEZ in Chicago, on how the legend of Michael Jordan gripped the city and the nation. His coming out party was against the Boston Celtics with the triple overtime when he had 63 points. And then you knew there was something special. I was working for the flagship station of the Bulls on 670 WMAQ. So we saw that beginning. And then, of course, when the changes of the Bulls as far as trades that they made and uh, being able to fight off the Pistons... And then finally get to that first championship. That was the beginning of not just Michael Jordan's evolution, but the NBA's evolution into being a global, important part of sports. And it was huge. It was impactful. And Michael understood that mantle was a heavy thing to hold. And and to ascend it the way he did. And everyone talks about, well, it took so many years. Well, the NBA then was much different. You couldn't easily acquire players like you, you know, you don't have the free agency movement you have now. You had to acquire players. You had to make trades. And until they had the right players around him, that's why they won. By this point, James Jordan, Michael's father, was a familiar face to Bulls fans, almost as famous as his sons. We tried to get to uh, the Bulls, but Michael didn't have time to come over and see us. Well, you know how it is, you know. He had to go out and play a couple rounds of golf. After that first championship, we were in the Lakers locker room. And, it was just, you know, when you're, the visiting locker room is very small. And we're in this small locker room. And Michael's sitting there with the trophy. Tears coming down. And his dad, James, sitting next to him. And I was able, at one point, to be able to sit next to him and talk to him, and just the, the drainage of, of the emotions that came out that day, it was um, something I hadn't seen in an athlete like that, especially because who he was. And when he finally, you know, calmed down as far as his emotions, the joy that came out of there, the fun that they had, and it just kept rolling and rolling after that. 
the relationship was I had, I had never seen almost in any walk of life a relationship that those two had as a father and a son. It was it was really incredible to watch and, and to see that. Um, I, I never had that with my parents, so it was kind of interesting to see somebody else. And it doesn't matter who it is, but to see that all the time and the, the, the way they would look at each other and laugh and just be, I don't know, just it was just like more than father and son. They, they were friends, too. Less than five weeks after the Bulls championship win in Phoenix, James Jordan was driving home to Charlotte from Wilmington, North Carolina. Somewhere along the way, Jordan stopped to rest. He was never seen alive again. James Jordan's red Lexus 400 was found in a wooded area in Fayetteville on August 5th. The windows were smashed, the speakers and all four tires were taken. Police discovered the vehicle owner's identity only after running a check on it yesterday. We processed the car last night for latent prints, also for luminol of the car to see if there's any presence of blood. Those tests were negative. Well, we don't, we're not saying that there's any foul play. It's not usual for Mr. Jordan to not let someone know where he's at. Cheryl raced out was on the air the day the news broke that James Jordan had been murdered. Uh, it was really rough because I was working at MHU Radio, which was an all-news radio station at the time. And I was sitting at the, the sports desk when we got the word, and it just kind of stunned me. And then my news director said, you have to go on the air right now since you're the only one that knew him and, and talk about it, talk about him. And, and, and at least I had, the, I had a few moments to gather myself because it's and, and something that I, I actually taught at Columbia College in my ethics uh, classes about, about grief reporting and how you have to, how you, your compassion way of doing a story has to come through. And I also had to think about what, what can I say that would be uh, compassionate, uh, the truth of being fair, and, and also because knowing that a family is grieving. And so I, you know, I did that. And, and then when I saw over 100 TV cameras ended up on the Jordan's lawn, that he had to answer questions about it. And you're, you know, I don't care if you know the person. That's, to me, it's always heartbreaking to see somebody have to go through that. And, and we didn't talk about, I didn't talk to Michael until well after that about that situation. And he just offered my condolences. And uh, he just said, because that was just rough. It was just a, a bad time. And and I, I don't know if you could ever get over that. Anybody can in that circumstance because of the way he died and because, you know, it took so long for everything to uh, develop. But also he had to answer those questions immediately with cameras everywhere. It was tough. Journalist Kyle Swenson has written about the case recently for The Washington Post. You know, at the time, like, Michael Jordan had won his three championships. I mean, he was probably one of the few, you know, instantly recognizable celebrities in the world. Uh, you know, he was at really almost the peak of his, his kind of worldwide fame. Uh, and then to have his, have his father murdered in this, like, very, very tiny kind of backward corner of America, of the rural South, uh, is definitely um, very interesting. Today, 
two young men from North Carolina, Daniel Green and Larry Demery, were charged with Jordan's murder after a video emerged of them wearing jewelry that Michael Jordan had given to his father. In 1996, both men were sentenced to life in prison. But now, 23 years later, questions are being asked about the guilt of one of the men convicted of Jordan's murder, Daniel Green, and about the investigation into the murder itself. In fact, on December 5th, 2018, Green's case was back in court in North Carolina. His attorneys arguing that he should receive a new trial in light of new ballistics evidence and allegations of a conflict of interest by the law enforcement officers who conducted the investigation. As of the recording of this podcast, a ruling had not yet come down. Over the course of the next six episodes of this podcast, we'll take a deep dive into the original narrative of James Jordan's murder, the story everybody knows, and examine whether or not it holds up in light of recent evidence. We'll also follow the current legal proceedings challenging Daniel Green's conviction. On December 5th, his attorney, Chris Mumma, of the North Carolina Center for Actual Innocence, argued that, for reasons we'll get into later, Green deserves a new trial. A ruling from the judge could come down any day. But let's start at the beginning with the story everyone knows about the murder of James Jordan. James Jordan was born in North Carolina in 1936. He would go on to marry Dolores Peoples in 1956, eventually becoming a father to five children, including son Michael, in 1963. A former semi-pro player himself, James Jordan played a huge role in encouraging Michael to take up basketball and frequently traveled around the country to follow Michael's postseason games. In 1993, James Jordan was the father of the most famous man on the planet. Here's Chicago reporter Cheryl Ray Stout again. We saw him there in the hallways after games. And, you know, he was just somebody that was a presence that was there. He wasn't part of the team, but he was part of the culture of, of Michael. He never intruded on the organization. He never flew with the team. He never, you know, he didn't he didn't stay in the same hotels with the team a lot of times, you know. So and and, and again, he didn't do that during the season. The only season he did that, traveled during the regular season, was ninety-three. The ninety-two, ninety-three season, the last year he was alive, was when he actually traveled during that season, which how ironic is that? that last season that he had with Michael. Cheryl Ray Stout remembers one of her more unbelievable conversations with James. One time we were in Portland, it was during the 92s uh, finals, and again, he was just somebody very comfortable to talk to with us, with the media, and, and we were standing in the stadium at Portland, and he said to me, he said, you know, Cheryl, um, I told Michael not to take the deal with Nike because I thought it was just, you know, a lame deal. And I looked at him, I said, are you kidding me? He said... The only time Michael didn't listen to me was when he took the deal with Nike. <laughs> we happened to be in Portland, of course. That's how the, come the story came up. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other 
other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. So the accepted story on Jordan's death goes like this. On July 23rd, 1993, less than five weeks after MJ and the Bulls won their third consecutive NBA title, James Jordan was traveling home to Charlotte after attending the funeral of a former co-worker in Wilmington, North Carolina. That drive is about three and a half hours, but an hour into his drive along Highway 74 near the town of Lumberton, Jordan pulled over to nap. At some point, he was happened upon by two teens, Daniel Green and Larry Demery, who robbed and murdered Jordan with a gunshot wound to the chest. Initially, the fact that Jordan's car was reportedly pulled over on the side of a rural highway was suspicious to some and called into question whether there was more to the story. But Cheryl Ray Stout wasn't surprised. People would wonder why he'd be, you know, on the side of the road. I'm going, did you know James? Because James was not somebody that liked to spend money. He didn't. He rode coach. He, he flew coach with us. He ate the meals because he didn't have to pay for, you know, he ate, he ate the, 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 the meals that we had. So, I, I mean, he was very, very, very conscious of his money, and he didn't, he didn't want to use Michael's money. You know, he was, so when I heard the how he died, and then goes, why would anybody pull off the side of the road? I go, then you don't know him. Mm. That would be, that would not be an unusual situation for him to do, period. It was Jordan's car that turned up first, near Fayetteville, some 30 miles north of Lumberton. His 1992 Lexus was found not on the side of the road where the murder was said to have taken place, but some 60 miles away from the body, completely stripped. The license plate read UNC 0023. According to an article Scott Rabb wrote for GQ, the tow truck driver who brought in the car told authorities that he found the business card of a Chicago-area Lexus dealer, Jordan family photos, and a letter from a charity thanking Michael Jordan for his help. Even so, it took local law enforcement seven days to trace the registration to Michael Jordan. James Jordan's body was found, but not identified, by a fisherman 11 days after he was allegedly murdered, draped over a branch in McCall, South Carolina, 40 miles away, in a place called Gum Swamp. At the time, the body was so decomposed from heat and water that it was impossible to tell if it was that of a man or a woman. But the county coroner, Tim Brown, who worked part-time and ran a construction company the rest of the time, noticed the corpse had extensive and expensive dental work. But he didn't have a refrigeration unit available. So he preserved the body's jaw and hands when it was subsequently cremated, still unidentified, on August 7th. James Jordan was not reported missing by his family for 21 days, a fact that much of the public has had a hard time wrapping their mind around, especially since Jordan turned 57 on July 31st, eight days after he failed to return home from Wilmington. 
The Jordan family did not report him missing, even though Mr. Jordan was last seen July 22nd attending a funeral in North Carolina. A lot of people have wondered why the Jordan family waited so long to report James missing, especially after the family failed to hear from him on his birthday. But during a 1993 episode of The Oprah Winfrey Show, Michael Jordan said it wasn't unusual for his father to take time for himself and that alarm bells didn't go off for the family until James's car was discovered. But once the word went out that Michael Jordan's famous father was missing, it didn't take coroner Tim Brown, still in possession of Jordan's jaw and hands in McCall County, to put two and two together. James Jordan was identified via dental records on the 22nd day after his murder. Later, a local teen, 18-year-old Daniel Green, appeared in a homemade rap video, posing and strutting around wearing the NBA All-Star ring and gold watch Michael Jordan had given to his father. Green and his childhood friend, Larry Demery, were tracked down by police after making a series of calls from the phone in Jordan's car. Back in 1993, not many people had them. At any rate, there was never much question about who was responsible for the death of James Jordan. 52 days after the murder, Michael Jordan retired from the NBA. Everyone knows exactly what the circumstances are right now in terms of uh, my decision not to play the game of basketball uh, in the NBA. That mean I'm not going to play basketball somewhere else, but uh, I've talked to all my confidence, uh, my family, my friends. As uh, Jerry has just uh, informed you, uh, to the organization, uh, I even talked to David uh, Stern as of yesterday and even today, and uh, I'm very solid with my decision of not to uh, play the game of basketball uh, in the NBA. Reason being, I've heard a lot of different speculations about my reasons for not playing, but I've always stressed to people that have known me and the media that has followed me that when I lose uh, the sense of motivation and the sense of to prove something as a basketball player, uh, it's time for me to move away from the game of basketball. I think everyone was stunned. Everybody was stunned because this was, you know, no one knew that that would be one of the biggest reasons why Michael walked away from, from the game. And it was. And when, when I did talk to him when he came back and we were in Boston, I will say this, what he did say. He said, he actually turned to me and he said, do you love what you do? And I says, yeah, of course I love what you do. He says, he says, you seem like you do. He says, if you ever stop loving what you do, you have to quit. And that to me, those words, that was what he meant about why he walked away. It's because he, the, the game, everything, there was a lot taken away from him at that point, and even the love of the game, because of what he went through with his dad. And that's something that so many people don't bother to even think about. They, think, they, they make up all these stories, but when you lose somebody, and no matter what the fashion is, grief is, can come at you so many different ways. But when you lose somebody, you don't know how you can react, and when you do react, only you, you only have to answer to yourself, nobody else. And that's the way I think he looked at it. Because it took so long to identify Jordan's body, there was no way for the police investigating the case to put the gun that killed Jordan in the hands of either Daniel Green or Larry Demery. And while there was plenty of circumstantial evidence to connect both Green and Demery to the crime, there was no way to prove which one of them pulled the trigger. For that matter, there was really no way to pinpoint the exact date and location of the murder either. Prosecutors had to rely on one of the two teens to tell them the story of Jordan's death. 
In the end, it was Demery that cut a deal with prosecutors, pleading guilty to the murder and testifying that Green shot Jordan in exchange for life in prison. Due to a judge's ruling in 2015, Demery was eligible for parole as of 2016. More on that later. The state's entire case rested on Demery's testimony against his childhood friend, Daniel Green. It took a jury only five hours over two days to find Green guilty of shooting and murdering James Jordan, though they declined to sentence Green to death. He's currently serving a life sentence in the Lumberton Correctional Institution. But now, 23 years after both Green and Demery were convicted, Daniel Green has a real shot at getting a new trial, as several recent revelations have called into question the way law enforcement investigated the case and the evidence used at trial. My name is uh, Daniel. I've been locked up since I was 18 years old, uh, over half of my life, I'm now 43. And I was locked up for a crime that you know, James Jordan lost his life. I had nothing to do with him losing his life. I want to speak directly to the Jordan family. Although I'm seeking for justice for myself, I'm also seeking for justice for you. You deserve to know the truth. Uh, you deserve that. And my family deserves it as well. For his part, Green has never denied that he helped Demery hide Jordan's body in the swamp in South Carolina, only that he had nothing to do with the murder itself. Green says Demery came to him for help after Jordan's death in a panic and led him to the body. And Green and his lawyer claim the evidence was manipulated to match up with Demery's claim that Green was actually the trigger man. Here's Kyle Swenson, a Washington Post reporter who covered the case. Obviously, that is like a clear, clear issue in this case. So you have a state expert who's testifying that there's blood in the car in this case. And and this was kind of the early days of DNA and forensic evidence when really it was kind of like, I think a lot of juries and just American citizens were kind of shocked by the idea, like, oh, but scientifically there's no way to get around this evidence. But we, we hadn't really seen the problems with forensics that would later crop up, get publicized as much. So, you know, if, if a state expert comes up there and says, oh, yeah, there's blood in the car, of course, the jury is going to be like, OK, there must be blood in the car, which helps the prosecution's uh, version of the case or theory. But the fact that then later you find out that there's such rampant problems and errors at this particular state lab and with the state agency is incredibly shocking. For example, back in 2010, 14 years after Green's conviction, an external review found that the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, who examined the blood evidence in Green's case and testified for the prosecution at his trial, omitted, overstated, or falsely reported information about blood evidence in nearly 200 cases, including Green's. This is important in Green's case because back in 1996, the prosecution said that the blood evidence found on the inside of Jordan's car was proof that Larry Demery's version of events, namely that Green was the one who shot James Jordan while he slept in the driver's seat, was true. But now the technicians who evaluated the blood evidence have said they aren't sure whether or not blood was present on the inside of Jordan's car. Then there's the allegation that law enforcement didn't follow up on one of the calls made from the phone in Jordan's car to a known drug dealer named Hubert Larry Deese, who worked with Larry Demery at a mobile company close to the area where Jordan's body was dumped. Turns out, Hubert Larry Deese was the son of Hubert Stone, the sheriff of Robeson County, North Carolina. 
and he was also friends with the lead investigator in the Jordan murder case. Deese's connection to law enforcement officials investigating the case was never disclosed to Green's defense team, and in the early 2000s, the Robeson County Sheriff's Office was the subject of a federal corruption probe called Operation Tarnished Badge. 22 officers were charged with crimes, including kidnapping, perjury, drug trafficking, and money laundering. The allegations went back years, back to the time when the Sheriff's Department was investigating the murder of James Jordan. Finally, there's the mysterious hole in the shirt worn by James Jordan on the day he was murdered and a mysterious bullet hole that may or may not have shown up after it was buried by a funeral home worker in 1993. And a question about how exactly that hole, which seems to corroborate the prosecution's versions of events, got there in the first place. Before we go, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that Michael Jordan did eventually return to the NBA and won three more championships with the Bulls, but it was the first NBA championship after his father's death that meant the most to him. It happened on Father's Day, and that, uh, June 16th, and Michael fell apart. And every emotion that he had, you know, everyone, you know, everyone talks about the, you know, the, the 72 and, and 10 season, but for Michael, it was the ultimate comeback and the ultimate every emotion he had was about his dad at that point and to have it on Father's Day. I don't know if that's cruel or if that's right. It's probably a little bit of both. good amount of times actually and always was kind of like oh this is a weird part of america (laughs) but then you know didn't link the two until i started reporting on this uh this case really kind of segregated lumberton the the county seat the big town and pembroke it was really a strange place old time county sheriff who knew where all the bodies were buried so even absent the kind of i guess bizarre uh murder It couldn't have taken place in a more unusual American place. The score behind the headlines is written and researched by me, Julie DeCaro, and our executive producer is Tony Gill. New episodes are posted each week wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Julie DeCaro, at TonyGill670, and at 670thescore. Portions of audio highlights courtesy of WGN-TV. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ucalypt Speed Test Intelligence Data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023.